0: Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello everyone. Very warm welcome to this Institute government event on Afghanistan. What did 20 years achieve and what should the UK do now? I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm director of the Institute. The UK's two decade long campaign in Afghanistan ended this summer with the withdrawal of British troops and diplomatic personnel from Kabul. A mission that began with the overthrow of the Taliban ended with the Taliban returning to power. And the mission ended, as we all know, rapidly and chaotically. Only yesterday in a statement to MPs, a former Foreign Office official, Rafael Marshall, described the Foreign Office's handling of of the Afghan evacuation after the Taliban seized Kabul as deeply dysfunctional and resulting in a failure to meet the UK's commitments to the Afghans it had worked with. So what did the UK's 20 year stay in Afghanistan accomplish? Should politicians or the military take the blame for the failures? And how should Afghans and the international community approach the next phase of Taliban rule? Well, to discuss these questions and many more, and please do start sending your questions in. I'm joined by a really brilliant panel. Jack Straw was the UK government's foreign secretary from 2001 to 2005, was part of Tony Blair's government that sent UK troops into Afghanistan, and he was the first foreign minister to visit the country after the overthrow of the Taliban. Tobias Elwood is the Conservative MP for Bournemouth East, a former minister at both the Foreign Office and the Ministry of Defence, and now the chair of the House of Commons Defence, select committee. And I'm delighted that we're joined as well by Hasina Safi, a former minister in the Afghan government who from May 2020 until the return of the Taliban was the country's acting minister for women. Very warm welcome to all of you. Before we kick off, some brief housekeeping arrangements. We're going to be live tweeting from IFG events using the hashtag IFGAfghanistan. Please follow and tweet along. Please do send in your questions for our panel as early as you like. That can be right now. And do include your name and where you're viewing from if you can. It really does make a difference. You can post your questions in the panel that's on the right of your screen. We're going to have a video and sound recording on our website within 24 hours. And this is going to run to at least 12.30, possibly quarter to one, given the range of what we're talking about and the questions you may send. But Tobias Elwood has to leave uh, a bit before 12.30, so I will try to get in his best answers before then. Well, we're going to talk about the past, failure and success, and about the future, what to do now. But first, I just want to begin with one question to Hasina. How did you leave Afghanistan? And indeed, are you still in touch with people in the country?
1: Thank you very much, Bronwyn. I would like to thank uh, Institute for uh, the government for this opportunity. It is indeed an indicator of support and commitment that Britain will move forward for the people of Afghanistan. So thank you very much. How I left? I left Afghanistan in an uncertain situation, very horrifically as a woman, As someone who came after the first two decades of spending refuge and worked hard in the last two decades in order to stand by for the people of her country. I lived in a very uncertain, horrific, horrific and terrible situation. Yes, I am in contact with the women in Afghanistan, with the women who have been evacuated all around. I'm in contact with them on daily basis and maybe twice or three times a day about what is their situation and what is that we can all together help them for the way
0: forward. Thank you very much indeed from that. And you're speaking from Britain now, aren't you? I'm not gonna say where you are, but you're in Britain now.
1: Yes, I am in Britain,
0: thank
1: you.
0: Okay, well, thank thank you for that. Let's start then with the past. The country that UK left behind, the achievements, failures of those two decades, the billions spent, the lives lost. Jack Straw, I wonder if I could begin with you. The UK entered, as I said, to remove the Taliban. Then the UK has left, along with other countries. Taliban is back. You've said the West has been humiliated. What do you, How do you take stock of the picture now?
2: Well, we went in for very good reasons. Um, I have described this in the past as a war of necessity. Um, I mean, the US uh, and its allies could just have sat on their hands after 9-11, but that was frankly uh, almost inconceivable. Um, And therefore, uh, once the Taliban had refused the ultimatum, which uh, President Bush and the United Nations presented to them, which was to give access to al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, um, a military invasion was inevitable, um, and uh, what took us by surprise then, w- with a, a reversal of what subsequently happened, was the uh, rapidity of the collapse of the Taliban. Um, as uh, you have said, Bronwyn, I was—I think—the first foreign minister to go to Afghanistan, certainly Western foreign minister, and I think you were on that trip, although I may not, may be, be mistaken, mistaken. No, not
0: no, you're not you're not miss you're not mistaken.
2: Yeah. No. Um, and uh, one of the, the images that are still graphically in my mind um, is visiting a, a girls' high school uh, in Kabul, just up, on the edge of Kabul, and this had been a two-storey girls' high school. But you may remember it was only a one-storey girls' high school because the top uh, had been shelled by the Taliban during the earlier civil war. And I met um, a number of women who were both mothers, and some of whom were teachers as well, with some of their daughters, um, and talked about how terrible it had been during the period of the Taliban then, and how they'd not only been denied education, but uh, educating a a daughter had been made a criminal offence. And one of them showed me this official looking document, which she said was a record of her conviction for educating her daughter, uh, and you may recall that I showed that to the interpreter who read it out, and it was indeed her conviction for educating her daughter. I mean, a staggering uh, notion uh, in the uh, well, right at the beginning of the twenty-first century. Um, my own view um, during the period that, that we were there was that. We were making progress. It was far from perfect. I, I mean, I think that in retrospect we can see that we probably pushed things a bit f- far and fast with the bond process, which was at the end of 2001 to set up a government. Um, but basically, uh, progress uh, was being made. If I'm asked to reflect on the period that we were in in government, uh, it was that I think the the Great increase in British uh, troops, which took place, was being planned at the end of 2005 and implemented in 2006 to take over uh, for Britain, responsibility for the Helmand province and put in, as I recall, an extra 5,000 troops wasn't uh, sufficiently well planned. And we should have frankly had, if we were going to do an effective job then, we should have put in many more troops. so that, that, that's my uh, assessment of, of that period, but i um, it ap- was absolutely clear that we had to do it. Uh, and although life was far far from perfect for people, it was um, uh, better uh, than it had been. The, the other a mistake I think more recently, in this, uh, uh, as Ina may disagree with me about this, but th- that was made by the West, particularly the US, but the British government had along with this, was that there was a contested or two contested elections in Afghanistan in, in post-2010 between uh, Ashraf Ghani, um, former World Bank official, who, uh, and Dr. Abdullah Abdullah, um, who had been the foreign minister and I got to know very well. Um, it looked to me on the outside, on both occasions, Abdullah Abdullah had actually won, uh, but he was less uh, regarded less amenable to US interests than Ashraf Ghani. So Ashraf Ghani was, was basically, it was arranged for him to become president with some kind of cohabitation with Dr Abdullah Abdullah. Uh, I was clear at the time that was a mistake uh, because Ashraf Ghani, as we now know, had only uh, uh, a fairly tank, well didn't have solid roots, I mean he was Afghani, but he didn't have solid roots in Afghanistan and fleeing um when the uh, taliban were 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 quite close, uh, sent out a terrible message, whereas all credit to Abdullah Abdullah uh, and to Hamid Karzai that they stayed uh, and you know, have, have, and and indeed are, are still there but that that I think was a major mistake.
0: okay, well, thank you thank you, and thank you for offering up those mistakes. Um, forgive me for labouring the point, but i w- I, w- I want to ask you about some of the other decisions early on because your first answer is very interesting. You mentioned this um, this, this certificate of this woman uh, 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 condemned for sending her girl, uh, her, her daughter to, to school. Um, and you, you were describing that just before as a war of necessity. The In the US, there's a lot of commentary, um, including from those involved, saying, look, one of the big mistakes was that the mission changed immediately from getting rid of the uh, Taliban and Al Qaeda after 9-11 to nation building and that the US was never quite as on board with the nation building as its uh, allies in NATO were. And immediately there was this, this morphing um, to much more ambitious uh, aims of, of developing society. That's 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 one. And the second one, again, drawing a lot on US commentary, of which there is a great deal, a lot of congressional inf- interviews with people who are very in- involved saying that in some respect, from from their perspective, perhaps some of the lethal mistakes had been made within the first three years by doing deals with the warlords um, who were hated by the Afghan people, not trusted by them, and setting up the basis for a state that became more and more corrupt with billions of dollars going in and disappearing. And that actually, it was incredibly hard to uh, retrieve things. From that point, I wondered if you just on, on those two. There's a long list of mistakes we might discuss, but uh, on the on those two, the morphing of the mission and and the the warlords. I wonder if you could. Um,
2: my view was then and is now that if you were going to remove a regime like the Taliban, you then had to decide what, what you're going to put in it in its place. I mean, this is different from the Gulf War. Um, in 1991 when, um, controversially, but um, I think understandably, uh, Colin Powell, who was then uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the US, uh, persuaded Bush 41 that they should simply uh, remove the Iraqis from Kuwait and then leave the Iraqis to their fate. And Iraq continued to be a functioning state. Well, that, that was pushing one one state out of another. In this situation, um, we had removed the Taliban, removed the government. Um, if we'd simply said, "Fine, mission done, we're, we're off," the Taliban would have reappeared. So this is it's not not this is not a, a direct parallel. But our, I mean, I. After the war, the United States recognized that in the state of Germany and the state of Japan, they had to do some nation building. Mm. Um, so they, they did. As it turns out that was very successful, much more difficult in Afghanistan. But there wasn't, I mean, for whatever, whatever it's now being said in the US, there wasn't um, any debate, as I recall, amongst the Allies at in, in the Bonn conference that we shouldn't make an effort to uh, build up a, a new constitution and therefore a new state, I mean, I think there was mission creep uh, and there was also profound mission uh, confusion. And one of the things I've reflected on is how we, I mean, this is Brits, including me, uh, we we had allowed an anti-narcotic uh, imperative uh, to get in the way of, of an anti-terrorist uh, imperative. And the truth is, I mean, not uh, unless and until you can, you know, in a mega way, uh, replace uh, the the uh, propagation of poppies and other drugs in Afghanistan. Um, you're going to have to put up with that. Yeah, uh, but and,
0: all right. And, and that was that was a, a, a Tony Blair had said very deliberately. Um, look, one of our reasons for going in is is the drugs policy. These drugs end up on British streets. We're going to do something about it. All right. Let's let's let's, let's agree that was um, immensely ambitious. Looking back, but just briefly on this warlords point.
2: Uh, well, you. you... I don't think we had much choice is, is the answer. I mean, they, they control the areas, whether or how they were viewed by the Afghan po- population depended uh, locally uh, on their own reputations. Um, but I'm afraid that that um, corruption in that part of the world, and it's true in Iran, it's true in Pakistan, it's true in India, for all sorts of reasons, is an endemic problem uh, and we, we created it and we weren't actually going to solve it either, but i sure. Um, we were very negligent, we, the the West, the allies, about what then happened to a lot of our our money uh, and also, uh, for example, material for defence purposes.
0: Thank you for that. Tobias Elwood, um, you've said that the UK has very little to show for 20 years in the country and and in addition that members of the British military have been let down by their political masters uh, throughout, just at the time of the departure. Again, how do you take stock of this?
3: And so, so, so important to understand what happened in the last 20 years, uh, why we went in in the first place, perhaps how we lost sight of what we were then trying to do, and then of course the, the humiliation, uh, which I agree with Jack, on how we actually departed. We didn't really uh, have a strategy once, you know, beyond defeating Al-Qaeda. And if you want to understand the history of Afghanistan uh, in its recent history, You have to understand the Taliban. To understand the Taliban, you need to understand the Mujahideen. If you want to understand the Mujahideen, you need to understand the Soviet occupation. And if you want to understand the Soviet occupation, you need to understand the U.S. foreign policy to get rid of the Soviets. And until you put all that together, you then get an appreciation of what you're stepping into. I'm not sure that was really appreciated. Not so much by the CIA, and I-6, and indeed the military, but actually the political, particularly Donald Rumsfeld, who made some schoolboy errors, and quickly to rattle them off, firstly was to impose a centralised government, because if you we've now all learned the history of, uh, of Afghanistan, going back to Durrani, Dost Mohammed, Zayn Shah, you've always had a strong central figure, but actually the power is... In the in the uh, down on the very local basis, and we didn't really appreciate. That. We tried to run everything from people. It was never going to happen. In fact, the Taliban played into this because things didn't improve on a local level. Well, the second one was we didn't start to train an indigenous capability, local forces, until about six years after the initial invasion in 2001, uh, 2007, and 8 is when we started to try and build an Afghan security force. Far too late in the day. And the third big error was that the Taliban actually asked to come to the table in bomb back in 2001, how different things would have been if they would have been included. You know, have we not learned anything from Northern Ireland, but ultimately much as it's tough though it might be, you have to talk to those very people that you, you know, were up against before. And we didn't do that. We tried to do that. And of course they crossed the border to Pakistan and decided to regroup. And then the final aspect was the development. We just, We created this umbrella of security. That's what our armed forces did. Not enough activity took place underneath that umbrella to change people's lives. And again, after 20 years, we had little to show for it. And This is why eventually leaders such as Biden uh, and indeed Trump, first of all, said, we've had enough. Let's just get out somebody else's problem. And we're now living with the consequences.
0: And thank you for for, for that. Again, a sweep over the 20 years and the mistakes made. Um, your, your point about members of the British military being let down by their political masters. Can you tell us what you mean by that?
3: Yeah, I mean, after a while, you know, we, in Helmand province in particular, this is where the British forces were focused, we were starting to make dividends. We were starting to change things and tackle, you know, the, 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 the opium crops and so forth and work on a local basis, train indigenous security capabilities. And now all that's been undone. We've abandoned the equipment. We've abandoned the country uh, as well. And many of those in the armed forces who have given you know, sacrifices, some come back with injuries, some you know, who are friends who have not come back at all, quite rightly are scratching their heads and saying, what was it all for? The only thing I can tell them is that the change of society as a whole in Afghanistan over 20 years has been so huge that the Taliban cannot unpick that and take it back to 1996 because the country, you know, the, the Herat, Mazar-e-Sharif, Jalalabad, Kabul, they swelled in size. You know, people now have mobile phones. There's a, there's whole communities there that are living a very different lifestyle yeah. that the Taliban uh, are not able to, to undo. And it's the fact that the Taliban are now coming in and they're not used to governing. They have no capability and they're not one monolithic organization, which means that they will now struggle with the country yeah. Which is why we need to get over this issue of working with the Taliban to get through what will actually be a very, very challenging winter uh, if we are to avoid the famine and indeed the starvation, which is likely to, to take, take place simply because the Taliban cannot manage. They don't have experience in running a country now as complicated as Afghanistan is today.
0: I'm going to come to Hassan in a second on on these points, but you're you're right about the the, the change. There was a banking system. I remember the central bank saying uh, the first thing we need is pencils. Um, Let me just ask you, though, about this this point, about the discussion about how the Foreign Office in particular handled the the exit over this summer and the discussion in the House of Commons this week. Um, What do you make of the really pretty searing accounts of um, people not at their desks not answering emails, and the impact that had on many Afghans who were looking to the UK for help.
3: This has been an astonishing eye-opener to have a 25-year-old junior civil servant expose what was going on. But I think we all knew this anyway, the disjoint between what the MOD was doing and the FCDO. Uh, We can do better than this. I know we've done better in the past. I actually (coughs) recall going to Jack Straw after the Bali bombings and saying, Let's create a crisis centre, which they not did. That wasn't used correctly in this this case. It's why we need an uh, an inquiry into what actually happened there. You know, emails weren't answered. There was an inadequate language skills. They've dissipated. Shortage of IT systems as well. Lack of leadership. We know we can do better. And in the spirit of global Britain, because we're probably going to have to do this all again, we must do better as well. It's not just FCDO. It's actually the Whitehall construct. We need to be better at coordinating silo departments to deal with emergencies such as this.
0: Thank you. Well, Hasina, I want to come to you at this point. Um, you've heard these accounts, um, two lists um, of of things that the West and Britain now thinks could have been done differently, or at least that, that Jack Straw and Tobias o would think could have been done differently. So if I ask you just the big question, did the West, what did the West achieve in 20 years? How would you answer?
1: Uh As someone who had been very, very innerly involved with people, I think uh, what they achieved was a very premier or primary basis for nation building, to be very clear and very prompt and brief, because they really, in one way struggled. I will not go to gaps as both of them, uh, Tobias and Jack, mentioned that. But uh, in the last two decades, there was a measure which we all traveled together. The waste and those who really worked. So, for example, inclusion, participation, education, health. Like, these are all the things which we cannot ignore. Uh, culture uh, mobility participation networking these are all the things which really happened media business like these were all the things which happened and if the evacuation process or the exit strategy have been very analytically planned mm. we could really be on the top of the flow, we could really plan a very, um, very less, uh, what should I say? Less uh, dangerous or less risky plan for the people. Like what happened? I was there. I really saw like, yeah. suddenly if you put someone in a grave, like in the dark, There were so many people who even did not need like as a minister on 15th, August, our ministry had organized 600 internal first aid packs for the women who had been internally displaced and I did not know that 10 days after that I will be waiting for an internally displaced kit. So that is why there had been. Initiatives, which worked like education, it's really an eye opening. There were so many widows, so many women headed families. They really started living. We Mm. cannot evacuate all Afghanistan, Mm. but those who are at risk. So it was not really planned for those who are staying there. The drought, now the cold weather. So I'm in contact on a daily basis. I really see how people are starving mm. and how they have expectation from us all.
0: So I'm going to come on to what we do in the future and to help Afghanistan in a moment. But yes. let me just ask you, what has been left behind? 20 years of effort, as Tobias Elwood was saying, the society, particularly in the cities, changed enormously. Yes. With the Taliban back, does all that just blow away? Or has some of that stayed?
1: No, there has some has stayed because as a result of the last two decades of investment, there are people who resist. There are people who do not stop. They take their lives at risk, but they try to not let the gains fall down. So there is, for example, small little businesses. There are are people who are still waiting for the help. So that can really give us hope and a step for moving forward. Hmm. Women participation, women education, number of doctors, female doctors, engineers, small little businesses for widows. They are all the things which are stopped, which are pending there. So that is what can give them hope. And also we can help them from here.
0: So right now, what is the position on girls' education?
1: It's different. As of my information, in some of the provinces, I think three or four provinces, girls are going. But for the rest, they are not going. They are all at home, not only the schools, those who are who were in the last year of medical, like after one year or six months, they would be on their house jobs, but they are not all sitting home now so what will happen is it going to be a repeat of 1996 Mm. so that is what we really need to think and plan for now
0: okay so that's just two or three provinces out of 34 yes that's that's not very many at all Mm. and so as we just begin to turn into this next question of what to do in the future specifically what can the uk do but what can the west do to help afghanistan let me ask you one thing Should we deal with the Taliban government now?
1: I think definitely we should deal, but the definition of deal should be clear.
0: Mm.
1: How does the deal help people? How does the deal help service delivery? How does the uh, does the deal help those who have no? Nothing to warm them up. How does the deal help those who have no bread? but they have in their houses. How does the deal help the teachers who are ready to teach, but they cannot go to school? How does the deal help those who want to get money from the bank and they are not allowed to take more than 20,000 apps? So the deal, the definition of deal should be based on the service delivery in support of public. Governments are always made for public. Okay. If a government cannot deliver to public, it's no government. So the deal should concentrate on public support.
0: Thank you, so Jack Straw. Let me turn to you now. As we turn to this question of the future, um, what do we do?
2: Uh, well, except we're in, a, we're in a jam in terms of dealing with the Taliban. Um, I agree with Hasina. We, we have to deal with the Taliban. That, I mean, that's easy to say. It's then the question arises: On what basis do we deal with them? Uh, do we get to a point where we recognise them as a uh, as, as a legitimate government? Uh, how much aid uh, do we give them? Um, and I, th- I th- certainly think that both should be a, a, a clear prospect of our policy approach. Um, there's no point us saying, "Well, the Taliban are you know, unpleasant people; we should have nothing to do with them," because I'm afraid we. Uh, have diplomatic relations with all sorts of unpleasant uh, regimes from uh, North Korea and Myanmar uh, through a a very long list. And one of the realities of diplomacy is you can't pick and choose uh, the governments you're you're dealing with. And I I think if we want to have any kind of traction and influence in Afghanistan, we have to deal with them. We say how we could... And and it's then really, really tricky because the Taliban for sure they have an ideology and a religious approach to life but they're not united themselves so it's how uh, you you best try to open up uh, divisions inside the Taliban and start a debate there about uh, we we the west will give you x if uh, in return for for y so very um, I, I think we, we need to do it and and to, to get engaged we also need to be talking more to the near neighbours uh, of Afghanistan, particularly uh, Pakistan and Iran, um, it's worth just worth bearing in mind that um, there is a common language uh, between Iran and Afghanistan. I mean, they call one's called Farsi, the other's called Dari, but they are essentially uh, the same. Um, so, Af- uh, Iran has always had big equity in Afghanistan, and actually, 20 years ago. Um, the Iranians were incredibly helpful to us in terms of providing us with intelligence and they they ensured that we were able to remove the the Taliban government much more rapidly than would otherwise be the case. You've then got Pakistan, this great sort of shadow over over, uh, anybody's policy apart from theirs in in Afghanistan. They um, have long nurtured and supported uh, the Taliban, um, and I'm afraid we turned we turned a blind eye to that for other reasons which we shouldn't have done. Um, I mean particularly the elected government say, well no we didn't, but the intelligence services, uh, in inter services intelligence department of the Pakistan Armed Forces, by far and away uh, the most powerful set of institutions in Pakistan, former pa- powerful and the so-called elected government, they um, have been there and and funding uh, and helping and supporting the Taliban for all sorts of reasons, partly because they are so worried that um, otherwise the Afghanis might develop an alliance with India, and they're paranoid uh, about that. But working out a strategy with well, for dealing with Pakistan and Pakistan and in India is critically important because just bear in mind that, that um, the closest ally and most important ally that Pakistan has it's not the United Kingdom, it's not the United States, it's China.
0: Yes, um, I'm, going to, I'm going to come on to the Chinese question in, in, in just a second. But just, just on this this point about what we do right now, and you've described all kinds of uh, things, I think very plausibly, that that, that that we ought to work at. But the country is starving. Uh, a lot of Afghan assets frozen overseas. Do we, the West, hand some of those to the Taliban or try and get them into the country by other means or, or not
2: not at all? Well, I think the crucial thing is, first of all, how do we try to, uh, to do what we can to avert an humanitarian catastrophe this winter? Yep. Now, I'm not sure whether handing over assets to them is going to solve that. Certainly <laughs> making food aid available would, uh, and that's I think should be the priority. Um, the, the handing over the assets, I think, it, part, Handing over the assets or giving access to the assets uh, would be part of a, a progressive uh, deal uh, with, with the uh, Taliban soon, but not immediately.
0: Mm. OK, thank you. Tobias Elwood, um, what do we do now? The big question and the really immediate question, as I said, and, and as has seen as referred to, it, the country's starving. We're seeing reports of this everywhere. Um, what do we do?
3: Well, I just echo uh, Jack's concerns. And I think the uh, urgency I touched on before is this winter. Um, and everybody needs to lean in uh, to, to help. Uh, put aside any discussions about recognition of Taliban as such and actually say it is the 40 million people that are left uh, behind uh, that need our support. And a lot of this does hinge around international funding. The 9000000000 billion that's been spoken of that's tied up uh, in frozen assets, i can 't see that being released. I was in the United States not long ago. Already you have uh, victims of nine eleven families involved in the terrorist attacks there that are making claims, uh, legal claims uh, wanting some of that cash it's tied up and until those are resolved, that nine billion uh, is not going to be uh, accessible. but the World Bank can provide its own support, its assets, particularly to UN agencies, and I speak of the World Health Organization, the World Food Programme, UNICEF, these are the critical ones that need to be given proper access, and uh, they, they have, need to have their teams bolstered to be able to work right across the country in order for us to avoid a million children, for example, from starving and actually freezing to death, which is you know a very likely possibility. Sure. You then have the next phase, which is what happens in the country as a whole with under the Taliban control. In my view, I don't think the music stopped. Um, Much of the country, north of the country, north of the Hindu Kush, was never controlled by the Taliban the first time round. Places like Mazar-e-Sharif, Uzbek, Taziks and so forth, all in the north, Um, they're not going to just turn over lightly and say, fine, this is how it now is. They'll be regrouping. They'll be retraining, rearming. And I'm afraid there's another... Couple of turns of this um, uh, in this chapter before things really do settle down, and there's some big questions for the West as to how we uh, react uh, to that. Pakistan has been touched on. I know you want to perhaps to turn to that shortly, but uh, it's not a clear uh, challenge uh, issues there. Pakistan have got their own Taliban issues um, that who may be looking at this and saying, "Fine, I can see what the Taliban, Afghan Taliban, did in in that country. Let's have a bit of that." in our neck of the woods uh, as well. And then you've got a bigger question to do with, with Western resolve. because one thing that's come away from this is just how disunited the West actually is. Um, uh, unable to coordinate what they want to do with their foreign policy and their long-term uh, commitments. Uh, terrorism is going to be a major issue. I actually had an opportunity to meet uh, Mutaki, the uh, foreign policy uh, representative in Doha, And he actually made it very clear that, uh, I think Jack touched on this, this is not a monolithic organisation, the Taliban. We can speak of it as one name, but they're not able to control every element uh, of this. And indeed, because of the money situation, because people are not being paid, the Taliban are hemorrhaging people to ISIS-K, because their income is coming from a different um, angle, from Middle East funds, from individual private donations as well. And they're wanting a more um uh committed ruthless interpretation of sharia law which the taliban as a whole is trying to be more moderate that's what they promised in the doha accord so many challenges there but ultimately i don't see us having at the moment leading into this enough it's almost as if fine this has been embarrassing but let's just turn it away and, and, and almost forget about it
0: yeah and until the, this particular um British controversy uh, over the Foreign Office behaviour Um, rose up in the Commons again. I mean, striking how little um, commentary there has been. The the media has kept reporters there and it has kept, but it's it's fallen off the the main papers. Hasina, what needs to happen this winter? We've heard all these reports of people on the edge of starvation. Thank you very much. I think the first
1: thing is uh, an urgent action uh, plan, uh, a very well coordinated plan uh, for all the uh, funding who want to urgently support uh, uh, Afghan people uh, in the winter, the, uh, whether the easiest way, whether it's through resources, whether it's through cash, whether it's through um, other channels. But the first thing is, uh, Uh, For the cold weather, the supplies and the support. Uh, The second thing is uh, for those provinces, we have had reports that drought is happening uh, to really see how they are helped. The third thing is the salary we see in the news, but no one has been paid yet. No one has been paid yet. So they should be if whoever is taking the responsibility I heard three countries were taking but it was just on the news no one has been paid and unless they are not paid they cannot help themselves either so Mm. the fourth thing is the restart of the education Mm. the schools in the higher education the fifth thing on the whole is I think there should be a very high level coordination leadership mechanism Mm. for all the resources which is going to Afghanistan as a lessons learned there should be a parallel monitoring mechanism to really see to really see how much is really going a million is planned for Afghanistan for an Afghan woman or girl but even a dollar is not getting down to them why what is the reason what are the challenges yes the third thing is There are successful local structures. There are successful local councils. There are successful local trustworthy structures and mechanism. The usage and reviving of that, which is also one of the success indicators of the last 20 years. The last thing is, I think, more and more coordination and transparency more because there is a group who have confidence still that they will be helped we really have to show the real definition of humanity to really see there are people who care about them there are people who think about them and there are people who really want to help them these are the five major points i think for the long term all of them need to be in a clearly defined vision of international support to the people of Afghanistan.
0: Okay. Thank you very much indeed for that. We're going to go to questions now. Thanks. There's a lot of good questions streaming in. Um, and I put aside the China question earlier when Jack Straw raised it, but let me just There's a pair of questions now on China. One from Keith Best saying, how serious is further intervention in Afghanistan by China now that both Russia and the West have had their fingers burned? Should we be worried? And another one, let me find it. from simon morley saying um are we avoiding difficult uh, containing china looks back to cold war comfort while real problems are war among the situations in the middle east fringes of afghanistan the sahel even ukraine are we um are we, are we not looking at the real problems and and i think the question is saying uh, uh, focusing too much on containing china uh tobias i know you're, you're coming up to your uh um, your, your deadline. Do you want to take that first?
3: Yeah, certainly. I think China is watching and learning very, very carefully um, as to what's happening uh, in um, the uh, in, in Afghanistan. It has a thirst for minerals uh, for lithium, for copper, for all these other things. Uh, it you know uh, pays a scant regard to, to human rights issues and so on. It'll want to tap into the resources that Afghanistan. Operates, it might want to try and make a land link between uh, a sort of a corridor, if you like, linking up to pa- uh, Pakistan, uh, avoiding Taiwan in case that you know gets a little bit spicy in that next neck of the woods as well. Um, interesting about whether there is going to be a relationship between the Taliban and China, given the Uyghur population is Muslim as well, and you know would the Taliban be trusted that they wouldn't somehow then provide mutual support in the long term. So China, I think, is being, as they do, being very strategic about this and very, very patient about this uh, as well. But ultimately, they will be looking more, uh, I think, bigger picture and recognizing, and I touched on this before, just how um, divided the West is. And that that might give them energy to to be a bit more forthright, a bit more robust, a bit more ruthless in pursuing their own geopolitical strategies across the world.
0: Thank you. And I've got also got a question from Christine Wilson in Norwich saying, to what extent will the mineral wealth of Afghanistan influence British foreign policy there in the future? Jack, what's your view?
2: Well, on, on the mineral wealth, yeah, I mean, it is, as, as Tobias has said, it's, it's, it's mineral rich. The problem is, is actually getting the stuff out uh, of Afghanistan because uh, the roads are so poor um, and th- th- that has le- led to incredible difficulty. But some of Some of the minerals, very high value ones like lithium, I mean, they will be able to to get out. And it's in in a sense inevitable uh, that that, that those are more likely to be brought out by the Chinese, um, both because they are so much closer uh, and they need more of this stuff. And so they they will uh, try and uh, clean up. Um, It is striking, by the way, that uh, neither China nor Russia uh, removed their uh, embassies uh, mm. when the chaos was on in August, yeah. whereas uh, we did uh, effectively abandon our em- embassy. In, and I just want to say this in terms of lessons to be learned. Um, I was struck when I was Foreign Secretary, and I think it's got worse, by a kind of risk averse view amongst some of the senior officials. Uh, and I remember one occasion that I was asked to close an embassy in a pretty difficult, um, risky uh, Middle East uh, country, uh, and I said, "Well, I'm not going to do it," and, and without discussing this directly uh, with our ambassador, because there are people, sort of, i have describe them as people in the office in King Charles Street. saying, you've got to close it. You've got to close it. second, like, you've "Got to do this. They could all be dead." So, I, which I understood, I wasn't, if in any sense, cavalier about this. But I've, I phoned our ambassador or arranged phone. I speak from from home to her home on a secure line. No one listening, and just asked at a level with me. And that ambassador said, "I've got family here. I'm not stupid, but my view is that I and my staff are willing to take the risk." Um, mm-hmm. And so the risk was taken, and naturally that particular ambassador uh, was was fine. Now, um, and I, I I think that part of Britain's humiliation uh, was to do with this uh, risk averse uh, view inside the Foreign Office. With I mean, people like Philip Barton and the others, good people, but they need to think about kind of role they undertook. He's the,
0: he's the permanent secretary for those not not secretary. fluent in every yeah. bit of vital.
2: Yeah. Um, going going back to uh, to China, um it's just the reality that China is going to as, as uh, Tabasa said, is going to use the vacuum that's been created by the West to move in there and so will Pakistan. Um, in China will play it knows it's 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 got to play a delicate game because of the Uyghurs Um, because there are other concerns that the Chinese have about uh, Islamic extremists. But on the other hand, they will wish to keep their relationship with Pakistan intact. And they will, I think, generally take the view uh, that if they got influence in Afghanistan, they're more likely to keep the Taliban under control than if they too walk away, leaving aside their own economic interest.
0: Mm, Thank you. Um, Hasina, are people in Afghanistan worried about the influence of China?
1: Uh, I think they are, uh, especially uh, uh, those provinces who have the borders like Wakhan and these places because uh, the experience that uh, I had in the Ministry of Information and Culture prior to Ministry of Women Affairs, uh, I had been in contact Mm. uh, with the Chinese cultural affairs and issues like that. Uh, People have been, not now, people have been worried uh, Mm -hmm. about their interventions and involvement in Afghanistan.
0: Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. squeeze in one more to Tobias Elwood before he has to run, Um, Mm -hmm. if I'm right with you. Um, And it's what it's really about, there's several questions about who should have been evacuated by Britain. Here's one, no name given saying a lot has been said about the tragedy of so many left behind, but it could be argued that the UK evacuation was too ambitious or generous, that we should have limited to UK citizens and their immediate families, plus others, such as interpreters who've been directly employed by the UK, no extended family, no special cases. Might that have been more effective and seen here and in Afghanistan as fairer? Tobias Elwood.
3: I think it's fair to say that we had such an open approach to this And there was chaos at the airport itself uh, with um, the uh, interpretation as to who could be allowed on the flight. I think only 1% of people that presented their credentials were actually uh, turned away. And that suggests that the bar was very, very low uh, indeed into having connections somehow um, with uh, who, who people worked with during the 20 years, rather than making sure it was those people... That genuinely lives were were in danger because just many people simply wanted to get out. I think why there are lessons to be learned is that France, for example, completed their entirety of their evacuation um, in in during the spring and lead in the early summer, so it wasn't left to the very late day of the thirty first of August. My frustration is that the intelligence picture that you get, and Jack Straw, I hope, will confirm this. You know, as foreign secretary, you are privileged to some interesting and and, and very helpful uh, intelligence assessments, in this case, would have shown what was coming over the horizon, the speed in which things are going to collapse in the last few weeks. Um, Certainly that should have meant that all leave was cancelled. Nobody should have been on their holidays. But more important, you you could get a programme in place which made sure that you got the people out that deserved to get out. There's other operational questions. Why Bagram Airport was closed down as well? Other, uh, you know, issues too. We were focused in Helmand, you know, Lashkar and Camp Bastion. Why did we then abandon them before we'd got our people out too? Many, many questions to be answered still. Mm.
0: Thank you. I know you have to go. Thank. It is a very, very busy day in the Commons. Um, thank you very much for joining us. <laughs>
3: Yeah. Thanks. Can I say thank you very much indeed. It's a pleasure to join you and and also this 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 panel here today. Thank you very much indeed.
0: A pleasure to have you. And then we will start watching you lot when we've finished uh, <laughs> discussing Afghanistan. Thank you.
3: Okay.
0: Um, Bye uh, Jack Straw, and you were Home Secretary for four years straight before you were Foreign Secretary, um, and also you know deal with these questions of who should come in.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, what do you make of the decisions Britain made uh, this this autumn and what and what it's making now?
2: Well, if if you're talking of the um, uh, decisions as to who, as it were, got on the planes, mm. um, I think broadly, probably at, at those decisions, probably the British government got, got right. I mean, I think they're incredibly difficult to assess who, who had a claim and who didn't have a claim. Um, the, the difficulty was that we didn't have enough people there um, and um, that we didn't evacuate enough people. I know the Prime Minister said we evacuated 15 uh, thousand people, but we needed to have evacuated more. And critically, picking up Tobias Elwood's point, uh, we needed, uh, since the intelligence would have been there, one scenario at least, just to put it that, at its mildest, was going to be the Taliban would sweep across the country for a whole variety of reasons, um, and that the opposition uh, to them would would collapse, and uh, to, to 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 the uh, to, to the Taliban would, would go. Um, We should have worked on that much earlier. We should, as Tobias said, cancel all leave. And that, I'm afraid, had to include the leave of the permanent undersecretary, the senior official in the Foreign Office, and, of course, the Foreign Secretary. And in deciding both to go on holiday and to stay on holiday, those senior people sent out entirely the wrong messages to the rest of the office. So they've treated this as a kind of, second order issue rather than a first order issue i mean on 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 the wider issue um of um giving asylum to to people on the whole once people get uh, to the uk uh, from afghanistan they are given either uh, asylum or a a right to remain because it's so difficult not least to, to to return them i mean there's a much much bigger question about whether the the 1951 Refugee Convention is suitable for today's circumstances, um, and I don't suggest we get we get we get into into that. Um, but we could and should have done more more quickly on the ground when this crisis started to to come up in late July and early August.
0: Thank you very much for that. And Hasina, do you think uh, are we picked the right people to come here? What were your your thoughts, both about the evacuation and the policy in general?
1: I think, first of all, uh, uh, as a woman, as an Afghan woman who have worked uh, in the last uh, 20 years uh, with Britain uh, and with British programmes, I will not regret. uh, Because uh, it was the coordination of uh, the women organisations, uh, the women networks, uh, definitely uh, the foreign uh, ministry uh, that me and like me. And uh, there is a group of women who are in different parts of uh, UK. They are residing uh, to come uh, to your question. Basically what I observe uh, in my surroundings, uh, they are all uh, the people who have been affiliated with Britain um, like in the place where I'm staying, it's around 300 or more than 300 people. And uh, there may be uh, one person um, like me, but most of them are uh, the people who had been directly involved in different programs, uh, or maybe they had their spouses uh, who were in Kabul and they were at rest, they are here. Uh, one of the issues I, which I would uh, suggest is for human rights and women's rights uh, uh, defenders, or those who have really worked. Because uh, no matter for me if it was government or non-government, but the women worked. And today, uh, they are at high risk. For example, as a women ministry, 98% of my provincial directors are stuck in Kabul. They are not supported by anyone. Why? Because they do not know English, first thing. The second thing is that because they were government, so they were not directly in contact with the international community. So, with like them, they are.
0: Hasina, are these people trying to leave Afghanistan? Yes,
1: they are trying. And also, I'm in contact with some international partners if they can at least help them, like the group of MPs, like the group of. uh, uh, women deputy ministers to help them. But I think this is, uh, not only for me, but a big question for all the women provincial directors of women ministry. That was it a crime to work in women ministry? Mm. Was it not good to be a part of uh, a structure for gender equality and women empowerment because They did not know an individual. They worked with the system and now that they are applying, no one is bothering them. Either they have to be a social activist or they have to be a journalist or they have to be, for example, maybe uh, uh, an artist. But why? They with the whole family, like I I can play tens and tens of messages that every day they are messaging me and they think that I'm still in power, and I have mm. the authority to support them. So it is really uh, 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 like it's a pity that they are not helped. And like them, there are many people who were at risk, but no one has contacted them. Why? Because they did not know, for example, websites, they did not know any, uh, they did not have any links, they did not know. Yeah. In- international uh, announcements, things
0: like that. And so, so let, it- me, let, me, Hassina, let me ask you, you're here now, you're in Britain. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, and, and you speak um, excellent English and you know about kind of bureaucracy and applications and stuff. Yeah. What is the quality of help that you think that they are getting now from the Foreign Office and the Home Office?
1: Uh, I have contacted with the foreign office as well, and they send me the forms. I have sent the forms back to uh, my directors, uh, so to find someone to help them out with them, but mm. we have not yet heard because what we heard was that they will consider the first batch, and for the second they will re-announce. So, mm. so far there has been new, up- no new updated news about that.
0: Mm. Jack, sure. What do you, we've had a lot in the Commons, and Hasina has just been giving us her first-hand account of this. But we had had lots of really um, detailed um, allegations in 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 the Commons. <clears throat> this this account from this 25-year-old official um, that has resonated with so many people about uh, the Foreign Secretary being on holiday, the Permanent Secretary being on holiday, uh, lots of officials working from home, and emails just not being answered. What is your what is your view of this?
2: Well my view is that it's unforgivable um, uh, and was completely unnecessary. Um, I understand the problems uh, that face a foreign secretary and senior officials when you get an emergency, and by definition the emergencies are are, are things which which kind of rise out of nowhere or um, are one possibility uh, of of scenarios that that could happen. Um, But What you have to do when you're faced with uh, an emergency is getting on top of it. I mean, the best example, it's not an exact parallel by any means I can think of, which was Boxing Day 2004, Um, we suddenly got news of the tsunami, which was sweeping across uh, Southeast Asia, uh, and particularly in Thailand and and Indonesia. Um, Our initial response um, was much better than it had been at the time of the Bali bombing for reasons that Tobias Hull would raised. We, we we greatly improved uh, our response, but uh, um we also had to, we we had a, a an arrangement with the Metropolitan Police where we took over their uh, huge response centre. We, we were still overwhelmed with calls, but what I did and what the senior officials had to do is come straight back to London and get on top of this, and then later on go out uh, to uh, Indonesia and to. Uh, Thailand to look at what was going on and it was by no means a perfect response but it was a million times better than this and it showed what could be done. I I wouldn't criticise any of the officials below the the very top because my experience and this was brought out yesterday by Peter Ricketts, uh, Lord Ricketts who was um, the permanent secretary just as I was leaving the foreign office a very good senior official uh, was that the officials absolutely up for handling emergencies. is it's, I mean it's in a sense what they're trained for but they need to be led and they weren't uh, led here and it's an utter humiliation. I mean what the Foreign Secretary Dominic Raabth thought he, he was doing on holiday for the whole period I've no idea. Of course you know we, we all have families in, in politics and it's I mean I've often said I wouldn't want to marry uh, a senior uh, uh, minister. Terrible. Um, uh, but the um, However, um, there are upsides uh, to um, having these positions, huge privilege, huge responsibilities, and especially when there is a crisis and you just need to get on top of it and that was the failure here
0: Thank you very much for that, and thank you for all the people who sent questions on this Kushfire i didn 't capture yours exactly but about the about the charges, but I think we 've covered the um, the ground let me just I would just go on for a few minutes if that 's all right with you just to take in. A few more flanks of, of questions. Hasina, there's a, quite a few for you. Um, one from Rebecca Parvin Graham saying, How do you feel the UK government can best support Afghan women and girls now? And should aid be distributed specifically to support women who are under threat? And others are asking, Should aid to Afghanistan be made conditional on the treatment of women?
1: Uh, I think uh, Britain has uh, helped uh, women uh, as a part of gender equality and women empowerment, and they can also do much more. Uh, I very clearly indicated uh, at the beginning uh, for education, higher education, employment, Mm. support to widows, support to uh, women-headed families. This is what they can do now and coming to uh, the evacuation process, definitely there is uh, a group who are really at risk and they need support. I think it's never late uh, to start up. They can still reconsider and rethink about how they can help those those who are really at risk Uh, and uh, about the aid. I think uh, for conditionality, This is not the time. This is a critical crisis time in Afghanistan. Now the support is required to all people. And then definitely for the longer term, when we are uh, defining the deal on that time, definitely there should be a specific portion of conditionality for women. Because today at this time, still it is the women who are hiddenly cooperating in coordinating with each other, not to go very much demoralized, Mm. but they are trying to mobilize and connect with each other. So there is always need for the conditional support and also specific allocation for women.
0: Okay, thank you.
2: And one last question to Jack Straw.
0: A lot of people saying, what have we learned
2: from 20 years? Um, I think we've learned a lot. I mean, we learned it too late. Um, I think there's there is there's some upside to uh, our intervention. It had to take place because of 9-11. I've, I've explained that. Uh, and I think Hasima and Tobias underlined the fact that there has been very substantial progress made in Afghanistan, which has changed the nature of Afghan society. And much of that is immutable. The Taliban can't do much about that. They, they, some will try, um, but uh, they, um, I don't think they will, they will get, get very far. On the other hand, they are certainly trying to impose their view of Sharia law where they can, and that has a particular impact on, on women. Um, I mean, there are plenty of other lessons to, to, to be learned. I've, I've talked about the fact that we, uh, frankly, uh, got right round the axles over anti-narcotics, anti-terrorism uh, strategy. And that was, was uh, we needed greater clarity about that. There's always an issue, I and mean, we came up in with Iraq as well, about whether um, the West should impose a, a Western model of democracy on societies uh, which have had no particular tradition here, there, and it may not even be a word in their language. Um, and I think we may have pushed that uh, too far. Um, but uh, critically, what was lacking with Afghanistan, particularly in later years, was an agreed strategy with allies, especially the United States, about where we were going. Um, and all that happened, as we know, was that um, President Trump, adopting a completely unilateral uh, policy, decided he had enough and actually Joe Biden then endorsed that policy without any of the kind of daily consultation that certainly we enjoyed with the Bush administration. And, and um, there are reasons for that. But one other lesson I would take away from this is that you have got to work really hard if you're Britain. And you, you did when we were in the EU, you have to do even more now to try and keep the US on side. Um, and then we, we won't always agree, but by God, since, we, we do need to get into, to a position where they don't just take us for granted, uh, as they frankly did over this withdrawal
0: Thanks. And just one final question to Hasina. Someone has asked but not given a name. What help can the Afghan diaspora? That's all the Afghans now outside Afghanistan, including in Britain. What help can they be to Afghanistan?
1: I think they are basically the voice of Afghans back there because they are directly or indirectly in contact. Hmm. What help can they they can bring attention of those priorities which the people really need at this time. I think this is the time that the diaspora, uh, not only in Britain, but in the whole world, they leave their usual agendas, but they should come to a crisis agenda and Mm -hmm. they can be really a power of support to those people who are really stuck and who need our help.
3: So Mm -hmm. they have
1: a big influence. They have a big voice because it's the diaspora who are connected in with the British and then they can be a hook in a pass-through for the messaging up at the policy level
0: okay well thank you for, for that very much um, we're going to have to draw it to a close then I think there, there are terrific questions are uh, the ones I've asked many many others uh, coming in and including going right back to the roots of, of the war, which I think we di- we don't have time for today, um, but questions noted. Thanks very much. Uh, my particular thanks to uh, Sina Safi and uh, Jack Straw and in his absence to Tobias Elwood, it is an exceptionally busy day in the Commons and we're very glad to have had him. Thank you very much indeed for watching and as I said, it will be on our website very soon. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk
3: slash events.